Okay, well, welcome once again to uh, another uh, uh, Schieffer series. This is the uh, joint project of uh, TCU, uh, where I went to school, and uh, CSIS. Uh, I want to thank the uh, Stavros Niarchos uh, Foundation, who have been our sponsor, as it were, for these, uh, these many, uh, many symposiums that we've had on just about every subject you could imagine. But there's never a loss of anything to talk about, and I think this week uh, you can uh, underline that. Uh, we have a new president after the most unusual political campaign of, of, of my lifetime, and uh, now uh, I would say one of the more unusual transition periods uh, of my lifetime. So what should we expect? Donald Trump was elected to the joy of some, to the despair of others, and I think it's fair to say to the surprise of most. Uh, if you think you are all alone in getting this election wrong, I would just tell you, uh, and how it was kind of come out, I would just tell you this. A colleague of mine at another news organization who is basically in charge of uh, their polls and one of the big ones, told me uh, that on the day before the election, he was talking to the Trump polling people, and at that point, they told him they thought a, they had a 20% chance of, of Trump winning. Uh, so uh, a lot of us we're not sure it was going to come out the way it did, but clearly the Trump people didn't think it was going to come out that way either. So here, here we uh, begin. Uh, what will be the state of the world and what, what is the world going to look like uh, when Donald Trump starts, when he is sworn in on Friday of, of this week? Uh, from what we learned during the campaign and the transition, um, what can we expect even the problems to be and how would he deal with them? Uh, today, uh, we're going to focus on those challenges. I can't think of three better people to put the questions uh, to than the three we've assembled here. Heather Connolly, CSIS's Senior Vice President uh, for Europe. Eurasia and the Arctic. She's the director of the Europe program here. Before coming to CSIS, she was an officer of the Red Cross. 2001 to 2005, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of uh, European and Eurasian Affairs. Before that, a senior associate in the consulting firm headed by former Deputy Secretary of State Rich Armitage, which I'm sure so many of you know. Michael Green is CSIS Senior Vice President for Asia. He holds the Japan chair, has a new book coming out next month. It is called By More Than Providence, Grand Strategy and American Power in the Asia Pacific since 1783. So he goes back a ways with this problem. <laughs> He's also ch uh, the chair in modern and contemporary Japanese politics at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. Uh, from 2001 to 2005. He served in various uh, posts at the National Security Council. Uh, he served as an advisor to the Secretary of Defense. He's authored numerous books on what we're talking about today. 
And finally, our friend Chris Johnson over here, who holds the uh, Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, has uh, <clears throat> served two decades in the intelligence services and the, uh, for the government and for foreign affairs, uh, various foreign affairs communities. He served as an intelligence liaison to two secretaries of state, has had extensive experience working in Asia, and he is just back from China. In fact, we were going to have this gathering last Friday, but Chris was in China, and we wanted him to be a part of it. And so, Chris, we thank you for uh, uh, finding the time to get here today. Uh, I, I like to start with the news. So I picked up the Washington Post this morning, and the headline in the Washington Post was, Trump stirs fear of break with Europe. Uh, I then picked up the New York Times, and it said, for a wary world, Trump aims remain unknown. And then I, I take three newspapers at home, and then I uh, opened up the Wall Street Journal. It did not make the front page, but on the inside page, it said, uh, referring to his remarks last week about uh, Europe, uh, Trump remarks prompt uh, European unity unease. So, I'm going to start with Heather, because Europe you. is, is your department. Uh, do these leaders have a right to, to be uneasy? And uh, what do you see as the situation across Europe today? Well, uh, yes, uh, Europe has an enormous amount to be uneasy about. We all woke up to two very interesting interviews President-elect Trump gave to the Times of London and to the German newspaper Bild. And he said three things that struck me uh, that we should pick apart a little bit. First of all, that NATO is obsolete. Now, President-elect Trump did say that uh, during uh, the presidential campaign. Um, he also said that NATO was important to him, so we'll have to uh, unpack that a little bit. Um, and, and to think uh, that, that NATO's purpose, the reason that NATO was obsolete is that its sole purpose wasn't to fight counterterrorism. I'll get back to that in a moment as well. The, the second comment, he talked about that European unity, Europe itself, was really not important to the United States. He focused his comments about uh, the United Kingdom's decision to leave the European Union last June, that Brexit, that he anticipated more Brexits, uh, more departures of, of European countries from the European Union. And then finally, um, he seemed to equate German Chancellor Angela Merkel to Vladimir Putin and his dealings with both of those leaders. He would see how it would go. He would see if he could build the trust. So all three of those um, elements uh, of that interview strike at, the, at really 70 years of U.S. foreign policy when it comes to Europe, because uh, NATO was created in 1949 to protect Europe from a growing Soviet threat. The European Union and the construct of, of, of European unity, uh, this June we will celebrate the 70th anniversary of the Marshall Plan, the most massive U.S. investment in Europe, the security umbrella to protect it. Europe, in my view, and Mike and I may uh, have a little bit of a tussle on this, I think Europe and European unity is America's greatest foreign policy success since the end of the Cold War. So to disparage it, in some ways, is to really undercut a major U.S. foreign policy objective. And then finally, uh, it, it is in, 
I cannot comprehend why President-elect Trump would place a NATO ally in the same category as an adversary to the United States, uh, President Vladimir Putin. And so there is a lot to unpack, but uh, understandably Europe is very uncertain about the future of US leadership. And quite frankly, I'm a little uncertain about uh, US foreign policy objectives uh, when it comes to a strong, united Europe. Well, Chris and, uh, and Mike, uh, what, what's the reaction so far to Trump in the areas where your, uh, your expertise is? Uh, Chris, you're just back from China. Why don't you tell us what you, you found? Sure. Uh, I, I think, you know, as with many other countries around the globe, there's a, there's a wondering of, of how to think about, you know, the various things that were said during the campaign about China, obviously, in particular, um, and then Asia writ large. Uh, and the sense I've gotten really since the election and the couple trips I've taken is that there's concern uh, primarily on the economic front uh, about possible trade uh, moves, uh, declaring China a currency manipulator, tariff issues, you know, these sort of things. I would say, though, that, that the concerns that I've heard there, uh, there's no panic um, in, in Beijing on this issue. They, they want to know if this is going to be, though, sort of, shall we say, held within bounds and not a full court press on, on the trade issue. Um, I think the other strong sense really is one of opportunity, um, that they see the potential for a more inward-looking administration, um, one that certainly thinks, and, and Mike can speak to this much better than I, but about the alliance structure differently, um, you know, certainly um, some interest in what's going to happen, for example, with our alliances with Japan, with Korea, how those are going to be potentially reshaped, um, you know, sort of lots of that. And then I think in, on my most recent trip, a, a very strong undertone is sort of, you know, if we think about what's happening in China domestically right now, the economy is struggling. Um, it's a real challenge for Beijing. Um, we have a major leadership uh, situation coming up in the fall of this year, the 19th Party Congress. President Xi is very focused on that um, and sort of enhancing his stature. And so, of course, uh, as has always been sort of the case, as the top Chinese leader, you have to demonstrate that you can manage the country's number one bilateral relationship well. Um, otherwise, you're going to have a lot of criticism. And in a highly politicized year, that's going to be even more amplified. So in fact, the sense that I get is that President Xi and the Chinese government, um, they're actually looking for sort of a modus vivendi, if they can have it, um, and maybe willing, actually, to, to give a fair amount. And so I think the challenge for the incoming administration is, while this notion of, uh, you know, if we push in certain areas, we might have some leverage, it's very important not to overplay that and miss the opportunity to actually get some gain. All right, we're gonna obviously get back to you because we wanna talk about Taiwan and some of those other issues. But Mike, uh, how is all this going over in uh, Japan? I, I found it very interesting that immediately after the election, the Japanese prime minister got on an airplane and came to New York and uh, some people I know say he basically was just coming to find out what the policy was going to be and what is uh, the new administration's view of uh, its alliance uh, with Japan. Well, he was coming to find out what the policy would be, and uh, by all accounts he came back not certain. But even more important, he wanted to establish a personal relationship with Trump. I think this is something that will distinguish different countries. In general, um, where there is reliable public opinion polling in Asia, which is outside of China, Australia, Japan, Korea, um, Mr. Trump's negative ratings are very high. <laughs> and um, uh, there's anxiety 
Um, and I think it's similar to Europe. The great anxiety people feel is the unpredictability, which is sort of the hallmark of his way of doing business. But even more to the point, um, there's nothing in Mr. Trump's narrative of, that distinguishes democracies and allies from Russia or non-democracy. So that kind of leveling of all countries as counterparts to make deals with is unprecedented for our friends and allies. They've never seen it, um, and they're nervous about it. On the other hand, um, you know, Prime Minister Abe went to New York, met with Mr. Trump. They, they had a good, uh, they had a good, uh, a good relationship, a good, a good opening uh, atmosphere. And other strong leaders, particularly in Asia, are going to be similar. I think Modi in India is going to be like that. Um, Abe has close to 70% support in some polls. Modi's very strong. So leaders who are very strong at home can kind of buck the domestic um, public opinion and do well. I think Europe's problem is there aren't very many leaders who have strong domestic uh, political support and the reaction against uh, this election result is stronger in Europe. Um, and so they're each going to, you know, it, it, Japan, uh, Korea, they face very real immediate present threats and they're going to be pragmatic about it. And they're encouraged by General Mattis, they're encouraged by Rex Tillerson, and they know from history that, you know, what's said in a campaign or transition tends to change. And so, like Chris described China, I think there's not a lot of panic, but there certainly is some uncertainty. Well, there's always uncertainty. Yeah. Isn't that the case? I yeah. mean, maybe not at the level we're seeing now, but there's when, right. when new leaders come to any country, I mean, there's always un uncertainty. Let's just, I just want to get to this thing with Putin. And, uh, you know, is it a, is it a bromance? Uh, I'm not suggesting this is true, but I mean, some have suggested he might, uh, the Russians may have something on him here that uh, could be used to blackmail him. What is, uh, let's just talk about what is this all about? Well, I wish we know. I think that's why we're going to have a Senate intelligence investigation, and, and we're, this is going to take a long time. I think for me, again, uh, based on uh, the, the interviews that uh, President-elect Trump gave yesterday saying that NATO is obsolete, the Kremlin spokesperson agreed with him completely that NATO is obsolete. And I think it sort of gets to, to Mike's point of sort of, okay, freeze frame that. Um, here you have, in some ways, equating um, those two policy views. It strikes me analytically, uh, putting aside uh, the questions of the interference into the presidential campaign, the, the questions of ties or, or lack thereof, just putting that aside, what Mr. Trump articulated yesterday in these series of interviews, I could probably just putting my hand over Mr. Trump's name, that's exactly the goals and aspirations of the Kremlin. Uh, to erode NATO's credibility, to erode the European Union and to, to conquer and divide, to get to a great power relationship on arms control where, again, it's sort of we're, we're back to the future and those two great powers will solve everything and they'll agree to their spheres of influence and we won't involve ourselves in each other's and we will fight uh, the common fight of, of terrorism. So I understand those are Russian interests and, and, and they're described as such. I want to understand what U.S. interests are, because my understanding of, of the U.S. alliance system based on American leadership was that it supported U.S. national security interests, and that's what I'm interested in. How do you protect the United States? How do you grow our relationships and our alliances to make our economy grow and to protect our citizens? That's what I'd like to understand in an articulation. This is less about 
Mr. Putin in some ways, and more about who we are and what do we stand for and what are our principles. We've taken them for granted, and now we're going to have to, to fight for them a little bit more. Uh, Chris, well, what do the Chinese think about this? I think uh, they're, they're, it's interesting the way that they've, they've sort of framed it. I, early on, after the election of Mr. Trump, there was a lot of interest from my Chinese contacts on, on sort of, well, what's it going to do with Russia? Um, you know, how should, we, how should we think about this? And, and I think the, the tape that was playing in the background for them was effectively, um, you can make the case that prior to the last eight years, um, the, there's always a US, China, Russia strategic triangle, and the United States had been sitting uh, as the fulcrum <laughs> of that triangle for 30, 40 years. Um, then we've had, in effect, no relationship with Russia, um, and that's allowed them to some degree to move into the center, if you will, of that strategic triangle, and they have some concern that that, that might change. I also think uh, that there's a sort of sense that, uh, of concern that somehow Mr. Trump might be thinking about uh, an access, if you will, a uh, very tactical one, uh, US-Russia, that would seek to constrain China in some way. And uh, I think their very strong view is, A, that's not going to work uh, because their own sort of relationship with Russia has uh, come as far as it has. And, and two, uh, there's a sense that they don't want to be left as the odd man out strategically um, in this regard. So they're watching it very carefully. And the rest of Asia. Well, um, Prime Minister Abe is trying to build a relationship with Mr. Putin, so I don't think he's unhappy about this particularly. But I would say at a time like this, you don't have to go back to 1783, but history is often a good guide. You know, um, the, the guy Heather and I worked for, uh, President George W. Bush, uh, met with Putin early on, said he looked in his eyes and could see his soul. Uh, eight years later, John McCain ran and said he looked in Putin's eyes and saw three letters, K, G, and B. Um, you know, Secretary Clinton did the re. Re reboot, reset uh, button, and of course, Russian U.S. relations couldn't be worse. But it's not just Russia. Um, you know, President Bush was very strong on Taiwan, but frankly, after eight years with the Taiwanese President Chen Shui-bian and very rough relations, it, it was a rough situation. And so, you know, relationships with leaders, and you see this working in the White House, um, take on a whole new meaning when you're actually meeting them in person and when you're trying to get problems solved, and particularly if those leaders are causing the problems you're trying to get solved. So I'd be very surprised, frankly, if the relationship between Mr. Putin and Mr. Trump is the same in a year or two that we seem to see today. If I can just add to that, because I think it's so important, uh, it, it really, in my mind, has to do with what are the, uh, the limits of the ambition of the incoming administration? Is it we can forge some sort of tactical relationship with Russia on very discrete issues, then I think perhaps there's some possibility there. If they think this is going to be some geostrategic you know, reworking of the system, I think you'll find, just like uh, the current administration has, that they'll be disappointed. You know, it, it is interesting that at this particular point, uh, and I think one of you made this, uh, this point to me uh, before this, we have uh, the three leaders of the, the th probably the three most powerful countries, or some would call them charismatic, I'm not sure I would use that to describe them, but Putin, uh, Trump, and Xi Jinping. Uh, there, there are great similarities there. Uh, uh, is, what does that mean? I mean, uh, and then, you know, at a level below that, you have Angela Merkel, uh, and then, of course, we have, uh, you, you've mentioned uh, the Prime Minister of uh, India, and, and then in North Korea, of course, uh, we have what we have there. Uh, what is this, you know, this, these 
these personalities? What what does that what does that mean? Well, well Bob, I'll, I think in part it's it's part of the the amplification of globalization. Uh, it feels like things are out of control. Uh, economically, we can't control forces that are changing how we work and, and our lives. There's so much social change going on, which unsettles people. Uh, immigration is a huge question of change, of identity, of, of community, of sense. And so what's happening is what I, mean, I sort of call the rise of the autocrats. And, and it's because, you know, how, do, how does one take control? How do, how do we get control of all of this? Who, who made all these decisions, these, this, uh, these the governments, these establishments, these large multinational corporations? We want to take back control. Now, that was the message of vote leave in the UK referendum. We have to take back control. And so strong, powerful leaders that can message that strong sense of, I am going to fix it, that's very attractive uh, to, to citizens that are, quite frankly, deeply disturbed and concerned about how their children, what world they're going to have. And so in some ways, that's the instinct. Um, but w by taking control, we cannot lose sight of our values, our principles, and what makes us who we are. And for me, the most damaging part of all this, again, just to, to pull on Mike's comment, to equate democracies and non-democracies, that is where I think we have to be very clear. Because if we're equating them, then we are equating our systems. And I, I believe we should fight for an imperfect democracy, but fight for it all the same. Is you, are you is in, in some way sort of referring to uh, Trump's comment when he said, I'm going to start out trusting both Merkel and Putin and sort of... Uh, there is an enormous difference between a, a leader of a NATO country and a non-NATO country, just our treaty obligations uh, to them. Um, we also have an enormous economic, political, social, cultural relationship. Um, it, it, it was equating the two. It was minimizing uh, the distinction. And in some ways, an autocrat, if they wish to manage democracy or have a sovereign democracy, they like the veneer of democracy for its legitimacy, but they are not Democrats in the small d sense. <laughs> Go ahead. I was going to say, this, this, I think Heather's absolutely right about the rise of the autocrat. In, um, in most countries where public opinion uh, polling is reliable, um, institutions are not trusted at all. The, it, and it's, a, it's the same story in Europe, in, in, in North America, in the democracies in Asia. Um, the press, universities, religious organizations uh, and institutions, um, legislators especially, legislation, uh, legislatures, all are just plummeting in public trust and have been for a decade. The one institution that has, in most of these countries, the highest support outside of Europe is the military, even in Japan. Pacifist Japan, the military is the most trusted institution. So these leaders, whether it's Modi or, um, or Abe in his own way or, or Donald Trump, are running against institutions which people think have failed them. I think the difference with the democracy is when you win, you own those institutions. <laughs> and there's pressure to uh, provide results. And, the polling suggests uh, Mr. Trump won not only because um, the voters were unhappy about the domestic situation, they were also unhappy about getting pushed around in the world. And alliances are an amplifier of American power. And those voters, um, Republicans, a large majority who voted for Mr. Trump because they're tired of being pushed around the world, um, will recognize whether or not we're having success. And I think the success will hinge on how effective our alliances are. 
So I, I think that's going to be a corrective um, in some of the rhetoric from the campaign. Um, and you can already see it in what uh, Madison Tillerson and her others are saying in their testimony. And uh, seeing as our allies have no other place to go, <laughs> we probably will get through this. But it is a very stressful time, particularly, I think, in the transatlantic relationship. Well, well what an unusual transition this was, though. Uh, where, as you mentioned, you mentioned Mattis, you mentioned uh, uh, Tillerson, where we had nominees for these, these high cabinet offices that, that apparently totally disagree in, in, in various ways uh, with the person who's nominated them uh, uh, to that office. Uh, I, I don't recall that. Uh, and, and, you know, during the campaign, and as the campaign was over, we, we in the press were often criticized for, for taking Trump literally, but not seriously. And I think one reporter, whose name I can't recall now, famously said, you know, the, his supporters <coughs> had just the opposite view. Oh. They took him seriously, but not literally. Oh. Uh, which raises a question to me. Uh, well, I mean, number one, uh, from now on, when we do stories, should we quote the person who says it and then put in parentheses, but I don't think he means it. I mean, it's, that'd be a new paragraph to put in, in news stories. But how do we, how does this transition shake down? I'd just like to ask all three of you, uh, what will we see? Will these, will these office holders follow their own lights or will, they, will Trump be running the show? Uh, how, how's this gonna work? Well, um, a majority of the public wants Mr. Trump to stop tweeting. If I were his ambassador overseas, as your brother was in Japan, I'd especially want him to stop tweeting, because every morning you have to explain it. Um, but I personally, I don't think he'll stop, because it's been very successful for him. Politically, he's really dominated uh, the news cycle every day using this, um, this, this, this technique. Very successful, even now. Um, yes. You know, most of the headlines uh, are about him, and, and probably half of those are because of a tweet. So um, uh, I think he'll continue it. Um, I suspect if that happens, we'll have kind of two narratives coming out of Washington. And one will be from the cabinet, uh, primarily, and then you'll have one which will be from the White House in the form of, of, of Twitter. And that's probably not sustainable for long. For one thing, uh, I was in the uh, NSC staff for five years. When we planned what we would do in the event of a North Korean nuclear crisis or you know, a Russian uh, grab somewhere in Europe, you have your military instruments, you have diplomacy, economic sanctions, but one of the most important tools we always had somewhere in our playbook was when does the president go in front of the press and say no further? Or, you know, and if, if Mr. Trump keeps tweeting, he's going to kind of devalue that really important tool in American foreign policy. So I suspect we'll continue. I think others will convince him it's probably not worth continuing. Um, and, you know, our friends and allies and the Chinese and others will just sort of have to sort these out. They're not panicking, as Chris said. Nobody's panicking about this. They sort of realize this is how it's going to happen. And we'll have to feel their way through it for, a, I suspect, a year or more. But it seems to me that that other countries, that when our government officials speak, uh, they have no credibility unless other countries believe that they are representing the president and that, the, that they're all on the same page. I mean, my own view is this, this is where we're in uncharted waters here, right? Because we're all trained 
uh, and especially those of us who've been in government, uh, you know, when the president speaks, it matters, uh, whatever the form of communication is. But now we're in this weird space where, to your point, Bob, about you know taking him seriously versus literally and all that. How do you how do you interpret this? And especially for Mike and I, I think, uh, when working with Asian governments who do really focus on <laughs> what gets said and in what order, because certainly like in the Chinese system, they put a lot of effort into exactly how they prepare the phrasing. Um, I think it's fair to say that for our, whether it's Europe, Asia, anywhere, uh, for our partners and friends abroad and, and all other countries, um, you can argue that the U.S. has problems staying on message in a, on a good day, and, <laughs> and so now we're going to have perhaps a sort of proliferation of, uh, of this. I agree with Mike. I think that over time this will be perceived as having some diminishing returns. And, but I think to your question about how does this all shake down, I think we're going to see what we might call phases of how this works out. And the first, it seems to me, is uh, what does President-elect Trump do the day after Friday, you know, and, and in those first uh, immediate periods. Secondly, I think we need to, uh, and it will tell us a lot, see how the rest <coughs> of the cabinet positions get filled out, uh, not just the deputy secretaries, but also down the food chain. Um, and then third, there's this whole notion of how is Donald Trump going to run the policy process? Uh, I think that's a huge question mark. I, I think when people think about him running a principles committee meeting, for example, it's just sort of hard to consider how that might work. Um, but he will have to do these things. And, and so I think, as Mike was saying, we're all going to have to be sort of very flexible because we are in, in uncharted waters here. And it's going to take time for this to shake up. But I would say the third uh, force to watch is watch Congress. Mm -hmm. I think Congress is going to play an incredibly powerful role, uh, particularly on foreign policy, uh, where we may actually manage to <coughs> rebuild a bipartisan center on national security. And that's been missing for quite a while. So if you can see any silver lining in, in what is happening. Well, how would that work? So, I mean, I, I'm just, my example, uh, after there were some, you know, some views that perhaps uh, President-elect Trump would, uh, by executive order, eliminate sanctions on Russia. Uh, now, so that may not do that immediately. You just saw a, a bipartisan 10-senator uh, piece of legislation land last week on sanctions. It was comprehensive. It was, I mean, this is where I think, and obviously Senator McCain uh, on the Senate Armed Services Committee on the House side, Congressman Thornberry, other voices, this is where we have a chance to rebuild bipartisanship on national security. It has become too polarized, too partisan, and th this is one place where it shouldn't, uh, you know, cross the water's edge. So that's the silver lining, and as, as uh, Chris said, you know, the government is a massive undertaking. A transition is always complex, even under the best of circumstances. It takes so long to get people in place and confirmed, um, because you can state, I want to do this, but you have to have the wheels of government, the leaders, the managers, to turn those wheels to make that work. And I think in, in, in some ways, um, the Obama administration sort of appreciated that giving out a speech and saying, I'd like to do this, but then actually making all of those wheels turn, that takes uh, a huge amount of effort. If this is, this is going to be, I think, a slow transition, uh, just getting the people and personnel in place. And uh, <coughs> other countries do not wait for us to get ourselves in line. This is going to be a very volatile, very fluid international situation. So to me, this is a very dangerous moment. We are just, we're not going to transition quickly. There's so many questions between cabinet secretaries and the, pres the president-elect. Um, 
it, it just makes all of this a little, a little more uncertain than any of us would like. I think that's actually a very good point, too, is that you know, other countries aren't going to wait while we sort this out. They're going to start making decisions, um, and some of them already are making decisions. In Europe, we're already. Yeah. And uh, well, I guess Angela Merkel just said that. Basically, we understand that we've got to, uh, we've got to figure this out ourselves. And this is where you know, the more that allies or adversaries make decisions about uh, the direction We've already now moved into a different, you know, this may, okay, this is uncertain, but no, this is actually, countries are making decisions. And what I sort of, what keeps me up at night is the thought that there is going to be a leader uh, that takes a tweet uh, literally and starts moving forces because it believes it has to take this seriously. And then we get into a 1914, we all start moving the machinery uh, without thinking. I mean, that's the worst case scenario, and, but this is why this is so powerfully dangerous, potentially, if a country misinterprets something and believes it has to take an action to protect itself. So this is very dangerous. And the prime candidate for that country is North Korea. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's it. Well, let's just talk about that. So what, what happens now in North Korea? Uh, Trump has said during the campaign, China's got to take a bigger role, uh, all of that. Uh, is this the most dangerous place in the world right now? It is the most dangerous. Um, North Korea is on the cusp of, some analysts think, has already crossed the line in, um, in developing and uh, being able to deploy uh, ballistic missiles that could strike the United States with nuclear warheads. They're probably there already with respect to uh, Guam, Japan, Korea, our major bases and allies in the immediate neighborhood. And uh, Kim Jong-un, the young leader in Pyongyang, um, has um, none of his father's and grandfather's ability to go up to the line and then back off. He doesn't appear to know exactly where that line is. He perhaps is feeling bolder because he has this nuclear deterrent to back up whatever provocations. And he is much more likely, and the North Korean system is much more likely to react to a presidential statement or tweet. I was in a lot of negotiations with the North Koreans when I was in government, and their delegations would respond to New York Times stories uh, because they just don't understand our system. China, saying China will take care of this is, um, Chris and I, I can't Remember how many times someone has come in and said, I've got a solution. Let's get China to take care of this. Chris can speak to China's willingness and ability to do that. Ultimately, and I think Chris will agree, our purchase on this problem depends on well, how well aligned we are with our allies. If we, Korea, Japan, the European allies, Australia, if we're lined up on this and there's not a lot of daylight, then China moves, then the North Koreans are boxed in, which is why the alliance piece of this is so critical right now because North Korea is not going to wait. Well, what I, does China do? I, I, I agree with, uh, with, with Mike's position. I mean, I think uh, if there's a criticism to be levied of, of the North Korea policy in the last several years, uh, this is a bit hyperbolic, but in effect, we have to some degree sublet our North Korea policy to China by saying, you have all the leverage, please use it um, and, and help us here. And to Mike's point, I think uh, oftentimes what gets China motivated uh, is a concern that they're being left out of that discussion, in fact, that their interest, their, their sort of weight in that is not being paid attention to, and that can motivate them. We saw this during the Bush administration with uh, sanctions on Banco Delta Asia, you know, other things, and there's a lot of talk about secondary sanctions, how this might happen. 
My concern from my discussions in China is that while all this is moving, and to Mike's point, you know, you have not only that strike capability, you have the, the build out of a notional nuclear triad coming um, in North Korea. Uh, you certainly have a situation where we may confront a situation where North Korea has stacked a, a Taipo Dong uh, 2 missile and we don't know what's on top of it. They tell us it's a satellite, you know, we don't know. What do we do? Um, and, and so this is a, a, a real issue. And when, when I think about that, what I hear instead from Chinese interlocutors is they seem to be sort of stuck in an internal monologue that emphasizes a lot of concern about uh, regime collapse, refugees coming across the border, you know, et cetera, rather than thinking about this is a clear and present danger to the United States, how might we uh, might act on this? And I think, you know, in terms of what we might see, I think you could see changes in U.S. declaratory policy with regard to if that scenario I just described were to occur in North Korea, we may tell them, you know, we have every right to preempt and we will. Um, and that would certainly get China's attention. That we, if we said that was our policy, that we might find it necessary to preempt this. It would, it would put North Korea in a very unique club. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah, we've never done that before. There right. is some utility with North Korea of having a little bit of the madman theory. We've become far too predictable to Pyongyang. They know when they escalate, we might round up the usual suspects, go to the UN for sanctions, but eventually we'll, we can't handle the heat. So there is something to be said for um, a president who is more of a risk taker, and there is something to be said also for a president who is willing to increase defense spending, which is critical right now. But um, it's got to be within a larger strategy that is very predictable to our allies. And if, if we start scaring our allies on this and they start hedging or defecting, we're going to be in very, very weak standing in Asia to deal with this problem. Uh, you know, uh, the point you raise about we, we don't know what's on top of that missile if they decide to put it up there. And I understand, I've, I've heard from others, that this is one of the things that's most concerning, including Victor Shah here yeah. uh, at CSIS uh, would say the same thing. The other night uh, at this uh, farewell dinner for Ash Carter, uh, the outgoing Secretary uh, of Defense, uh, I, I asked him at one point, uh, you know, what would we do? And he said, look, uh, we, we are on a go-to-war tonight footing for all of the forces that we have uh, out, out in uh, that part of the world. And he said, we've been in the, on that footing for, for two years at least. And I said, so what if they do fire a missile? He said, well, if we determine it's going to South Korea, Japan, or the coast of the United States, we simply shoot it down. Uh, but that's the question is we can't know whether it is a satellite or not, or, or how, how much of a, of a problem is that to understand what's on top of that missile? And, but, and I would ask the second question, uh, are we certain that we could shoot that missile down? I, uh, I do, Mike's probably got a better view on that. I, my, my own view is that the, this is an extremely challenging problem. Uh, we're dealing with what in effect is a hermetically sealed country. Um, I think it's fair to say just by the nature of that problem, um, the development of their program has outstripped, for example, the intelligence community's assessments of where they might be um, in this <coughs> process. Um, and it's a challenging, uh, probably the most challenging uh, intelligence target, uh, trying to sort of figure this out. And so you find yourself very quickly in a position where, whether you're the intelligence community or, or policymakers discussing uh, the issue, uh, you have to deal with that uncertainty. And uh, I think, you know, given how developments have occurred uh, with regard to the rapid development of the North Korean program, 
the tendency is going to be to err on the side of we have to assume it's bad, um, even though we may not know for sure. We have to assume that there's a problematic uh, piece developing here, and that's a major change in how we think about those kinds do, of Do you, Mike, do you think we might actually uh, develop a policy, a preemptive strike policy? Um, I th What's the likelihood? Of I think we'll, I think the next administration will responsibly have to put that on the table, um, uh, knowing full well that um, there's a danger. I'd say it's well south of fifty percent, but it's it's a scary scenario that um, that the North Korean regime might open up on Seoul and Tokyo. Um, with hundreds of uh, missiles and uh, thousands of artillery tubes with a chemical and biological arsenal. We, we don't know how far this would go. I say it's unlikely because the next step is the destruction of the North Korean regime, uh, certainly. And so... I mean, there's no question in your mind we would respond. Oh, it would be... But, I mean, it would be a suicidal move yeah. by the North Koreans, but their system's opaque is an understatement. There's a reason yeah. the intelligence community calls it a hard target. So it's, it's, it's a non-trivial danger. Um, on the other hand, um, I think preemption in the scenario uh, where it could potentially hit the U.S. or an ally has to be on the table. But here's the thing. If you're going to put things out there like we're considering all options or things like that, it has to be very carefully calibrated and considered by the, by the cabinet, by the National Security Council, by the, by the principles committee. It can't be a sort of off-the-cuff thing. Um, particularly if you want the deterrent effect without the danger. <laughs> so um, that, all of this transition, all this process, they've got to sort this out pretty quickly, I think. And I think a lot of allies will tell them, you've got to sort this out pretty quickly. Uh, are we going to get in a trade war with China? <laughs> uh, well, um, you know, a lot of that, I think, uh, depends. I, I think what we can say is, is that you can argue that over the 40 years of our relationship with China since the opening of diplomatic, the resumption of diplomatic relations, um, the economic relationship has always acted as sort of a, a shock absorber. Uh, when we run into security tensions in our relationship over Taiwan, over South China Sea, cyber, you know, there's a number of issues. That economic relationship is always the shock absorber that keeps us from tipping over into a Cold War style relationship uh, with China. So if that economic piece becomes scratchier, uh, that can really be um, problematic. I think, again, as I mentioned earlier, President Xi, the whole Chinese system, they have a desire to keep this, you know, they don't want to fight with the United States. And in fact, the sense I get is that, you know, whether it's uh, the trade balance issue, agricultural exports into China, high-tech exports into China, market access issues and so on, um, at least for now, they're willing to uh, sort of put a foot forward and, uh, you know, if they can get the right noises. But they're definitely preparing a retaliation, you know, sort of approach as well. And you What can, would they do? Well, you, you know, basically any U.S. multinational corporation that either produces things in China, has supply chain there, or sells into that market, and many companies have both, um, will be high on that retaliation <coughs> list. So, you know, pick your, pick your major MNC, that's the case. And then, you know, broad communities like the agricultural community, I mean, I think a lot of people don't understand how many U.S. soybeans go to China, you know, these sort of things. And we saw a little bit of this. They've just, uh, in the last week, uh, conducted some anti-dumping measures um, to sort of signal the administration. Um, I was just in a panel on, on the Taiwan Strait just before this one, and you know, we were talking about the movement of the aircraft carrier, the Liaoning through the Taiwan Strait. I mean, these are sort of very um, strong signals, but I think there's opportunity. And so I think the question is, when you read you know, some of the writings of the people who you know, seem to be holding um, important positions now, 
there's two things that come through. The first is that um, you know having a scratchier economic relationship with China, um, they'll be the bigger loser uh, in that our core economic strength domestically and so on is, as, is such that we can weather that better than they can. I, I think that's, that as a premise is, is largely true. The risk piece is an assumption that while we may not come out of that problem unscathed, uh, we would weather it relatively lightly. Uh, I'm not sure that's the case. Is uh, TPP, is that dead? Well, you know, people in the transition team have said it's dead, um, but I don't think it's dead. Um, the, uh, the reasons are, A, I, I don't think uh, that it's TPP itself that is uh, the problem. It's the, it's the label, it's sort of the symbolism of an international economic policy that a lot of voters thought didn't take care of them. Uh, number two, as Chris said, um, these states that helped Donald Trump win the blue wall that broke down Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Ohio, these are exporting states, and especially agriculture exporting states. And if you're going to grow foreign markets, you, you need trade agreements. And there's going to have to be some give and take. And in, in, in deals like TPP, we do very little liberalization. It's almost all on their end. Um, and I think, they're going to be, um, I think there's going to be pressure from within these same states, uh, which are in polls a majority free trade, to start getting some deals going. So the name may change, the, uh, the talk about bilateral, multilateral, but I don't see how politically you get too far without some kind of trade strategy to open markets. You can't open markets. To Chris's point, we don't do mercantilism well. We don't do protectionism well. An authoritarian system can. None of the governors are going to sign up for this. Most members of Congress and most agriculture exporters, industry, are not going to sign up for this. We, we will suffer less in a trade war because our economy is so strong, but we're just not good at it. So I think in time, uh, some of these things will start to take new form and uh, move forward. So, so uh, you think there will be something like TPP, yeah. uh, maybe something by a different name? It's going to be a couple years. It's, <coughs> this, is, uh, this reminds me of the solution to uh, Obamacare. And yeah. a, a very wise philosopher uh, uh, and uh, geostrategist at our house, my wife, <laughs> says, that the, the solution to Obamacare is just change the name to Trump Care and go on from there. So it sounds like you're, you're kind well, of proposing. A lot of our partners are joking they should call it the Trump Pacific Partnership. I don't think it's that easy. <laughs> oh, there, you know, there are about six or seven centers of gravity for international economic policy in this administration right now with very different views on trade. And, uh, you know, Clinton wasn't unlike that in some ways in the beginning. It's going to take a while to sort all that out. But I, I think the domestic interests and our international position will start to nudge us towards trade deals. Um, I just don't know how long it'll take. And I think the issue of, of TPP, I mean, it really gets to this core issue we were discussing earlier about how does policy get made uh, in this incoming administration. If you look at those sort of interests, I mean, you have a situation where, I mean, take uh, Governor Brandstand, for example, who's going to be our ambassador to Beijing. He's built his gubernatorial career on agricultural exports to China. Yep. Uh, that's, that's been huge. And so how does he manage those, those instincts versus you know, what seems to be coming out of the administration? Likewise, I think you can say that if you look at uh, what appears to be the developing economic team, you have four or five very strong-willed, very independent sort of people. How do, how do you man, you know, who comes out on top of that sort of knife fight, if you will, uh, over policy? It's, it's very challenging. It, in some ways, it looks like it's being sort of set up like an, you know, life imitating art, something like uh, an episode of The Apprentice, you know, where you have contending, <laughs> contending groups and, and trying to sort out who's, who's, who's going to come out on top. It's, it's a challenge. So, Heather, uh, there are also various kind of trade questions that are going to be coming up uh, yes. uh, in your, your part of the world. Indeed. And uh, Brexit 
uh, how do we react to that? Uh, what do you see happening uh, in, because after all, uh, Europe's a pretty important trade partner uh, to us too. A massive trade and investment partnership, uh, and it, it's not just China that's been caught, uh, Mr. Trump, yesterday suggested that they would, uh, that a new administration would put a 35% uh, import tariff on German uh, manufacturing if, if they would move uh, the auto sector to, to Mexico. So we have a big outline this, this morning. Uh, uh, British Prime Minister Theresa May uh, outlined uh, what a Brexit negotiation would look like. It's going to be clean and hard. Uh, it was about uh, the UK is not going to pursue uh, the single market, uh, the customs union looks not as well. There may be some bits and pieces that they will remain. Uh, this is going to be uh, quite <coughs> disruptive to the European uh, Union trading pattern. Um, and Mr. Trump has suggested that there would be uh, one of the trade agenda he's excited about would be creating a US-UK bilateral trade agenda. Now, that cannot happen until the UK formally leaves uh, the European Union, um, and it's unclear how much they would do in those two years. But I think you are going to see a very strong US-UK trade agenda. I fear it's going to be developed as an anti-European uh, agenda, which, again, sort of, you feel like you're sort of, you know, time here. Um, we need a strong European Union. We need a strong United Kingdom. We have to manage this carefully. And right now, both the EU and the UK have gotten into a cycle of uh, the other one has to be punished for the decision that they have taken. And that is just cutting your nose off to spite your face. That's what my mother would tell me <laughs> that behavior is. Um, we really, but, and, and the US has to play, uh, I, I think, a, a role in trying to make sure that both sides come out successful because it's going to so dramatically impact the US trade agenda. So. Uh, I want to just say, we got kind of off to a late start today. I was supposed to, and I always promised to wind these things up on time, which would be about 11.30, which would be about five minutes from now. Uh, I thought uh, that what I would do is we started at uh, 10.45. I, I will let it go until 10.45, but those of you who have appointments and, and wish to leave at 11.30 uh, will we'll completely understand. But I do want to... Uh, uh, get to some questions from you all in the audience. And let me just also, we're just kind of, as we used to say, hopscotch in the world for headlines here. So going from one subject to another, there's so much to talk about. Uh, talk about this whole idea of is the one China policy that we have uh, followed since the Nixon administration, uh, are we about to see some change in that? The we had the, the uh, overture to uh, Taiwan, and uh, then somewhere along in there, uh, we need to also talk about what's happening to those, uh, those uh, islands in the South China Sea. And then once we get those two things done, uh, I'd love to go to your all questions. Go ahead. Um, I don't know if the One China policy is going to change. I suspect not in the most fundamental uh, rendering of it in the so-called three communiques in the Taiwan Relations Act. Um, I'm not overly worried about this personally. Chris may have a different view because presidents who've come in very tough on this issue, uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, George W. Bush, ended up with the most productive U.S.-China relationships of their era. And so there's something to be said for a little bit of sort of tough support for Taiwan going into this, um, in part because when you're president, you don't actually have as many opportunities to work directly with the leader on Taiwan. Uh, 
the pattern would be, you know, that we'll probably have a product, more productive U.S.-China relationship for that. President Obama came in without beating up uh, Beijing on the Taiwan issue um, and ended up with a pretty rough relationship with Beijing. So on that one, you know, I, I, I'm, I, this could turn out okay, actually, the way we're starting starting out. South China Sea, I, you know, most of our friends and allies would say they're worried about American willpower. That uh, while Ash Carter's been forward-leaning, for the most part, uh, the Obama administration's been reactive and hesitant to, um, to, to, to introduce risk into U.S.-China relations over the South China Sea. Most experts would say that was a tactical mistake, um, and we probably need to lean forward. Um, but we're playing two games here. One is we're trying to show American willpower. We're also trying to show to Beijing the consequences of their action are going to be isolation in Asia, which gets back to the theme we keep hitting. You need your friends, you need allies, you need Europe to speak with one voice on these issues. Because ultimately, the solution, we hope, will not be military. It'll be convincing Beijing that it's not worth uh, the risks they're taking. And, and Chris, uh, Rex Tillerson said during his confirmation, we should actually deny the mm -hmm. Chinese access to those islands. Mm -hmm. uh, is that realistic? I don't think so. Um, you know, if you look at what's happened, or, or you know, you would have to uh, assume a tremendous risk for cost, uh, because uh, a statement like that, I mean, I happened to be in China when those <laughs> comments were made and, you know, sort of got the response you might expect. And if you look at, uh, you know, sort of Chinese media and the way they handle that, of course, you know, there's, there was strong pushback. I think it's important for the incoming administration to understand this isn't just theater for them, you know, this is real policy uh, and there are certain red lines. I mean, one thing that strikes me about just what seems to be the emerging policy, and this, this touches on the one China as well, there seems to be a very strong focus among the incoming team on this uh, the, the Chinese notion of a new style of great power relations, as they call it, and a sense that you know this was a conspiracy theory by China to get them to uh, get the U.S. to accept all of their core interests, Taiwan, South China Sea, et cetera, um, while the, basically doing nothing for us on our, our core interests, market access, you know, things things like this. Um, and that you know the Obama administration in this narrative um, sort of fell for that, if you will. And so the, the response that's being crafted seems to be sort of, so our response should be that we will begin to push back um, simultaneously on each one of those core interests, Taiwan, you know, South China Sea, et cetera, until they begin to acknowledge our uh, uh, core interests and have more balance. Uh, and I think to Mike's point, and this touches on the one China piece, the fundamental policy is not going to change. I don't think that's going to change uh, because it is not a negotiating chip as far as China is, is concerned. What I do think we'll see is more put stretching of the limits of what we can do with Taiwan under the rubric of the existing one China policy. And that probably will touch mainly on issues of the officiality of how we handle our relations with Taiwan, you know, things uh, along those lines. All right. Well, I hope you all have some questions right here. Go ahead. And here comes person with the microphone. And of course, uh, Peter Humphrey, the I'm an tradition here is we ask questions, we don't make statements. <laughs> uh, Peter Humphrey, I'm an intel analyst and a former diplomat. Executive Order 12333 forbids the United States from aiding, abetting, or conducting decapitation exercises. Uh, it's an executive order that's been renewed by every president since Lyndon Johnson. Um, it appears that that might be a solution to problems in Syria and North Korea. Is there any chance that the Trump administration would not renew that executive order? I Who would like to? I personally have no idea, but uh, my sense is that's another one of these, these sort of, shall we say, touchstones, uh, where I think you can argue that um, the machine of the U.S. government will attempt to 
place constraints, handcuff, if you will, any move to move away from that would be my sense. And I think the real question is, does President-elect Trump kind of do what his predecessors have done, whatever their opinions might have been, and sort of accept the handcuffs that get put on, or will he say, I'm different, I'm, I'm you know, anti-establishment, and, and reject that? You know, uh, your question uh, reminds me, we had so much to talk about today that we never got to the Middle East, which, now that, <laughs> that is an extraordinary situation. And you mentioned Syria. Let me just ask uh, Heather, where do you see those those talks going? Uh, do you think uh, when Putin says he's now invited the United States to be a part of this, uh, what's he up to there? Well, the uh, the Syrian ceasefire, uh, the broker brokerage of that was Russia, Iran, and Turkey. Uh, they hope to hold a, a meeting in Kazakhstan, the capital Astana. Um, this was done in some ways as a rejection of the United States. Uh, Europe, not part of that as well. Again, it is, it is not for the sake of the relationship or the ceasefire. It is the principles by which uh, this is conducted. I think we have uh, no idea. I'm going to be very interested to see. For me, as I watch uh, the Syria conflict, I focus on Turkey. Uh, Turkey as a critical NATO ally. Uh, the Turkish-Russian uh, rapprochement is something that we have to follow closely uh, to understand, again, what the principles of, of that relationship will be. Um, so this is uh, going to continue to be destabilizing. Just to get back to uh, Mr. Trump's view on NATO, uh, you know, NATO is training uh, Iraqi forces. Uh, just on the counterterrorism point, I should have made this, 15 years in Afghanistan on counterinsurgency and counterterrorism. NATO has been working on the counterterrorism front. Uh, NATO is very relevant uh, as it comes to uh, pr protecting our NATO allies. So uh, this is going to be an incredibly uh, destabilizing part of the world, and I worry about continuing collateral damage of neighboring countries. All right. Uh, this hand came up first. Go next here. Hi, We'd I'm Chen like to see some uh, women raise questions here. Go Hi, I'm Chen Weihua, China Daily. Chris, you mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, U.S. and uh, allies should step up to a North Korea issue without China, actually. You think uh, this uh, could be a viable option. But, you know, all this year the narrative has been the North Korea issue cannot be solved without the participation of China. You know, my question is really what incentive you think the Trump administration is going to offer to China to use more of its leverage on North Korea. Actually, we have Trump tweeting like uh, if Russian helps in Syria, nuclear issue, we're going to lift the sanction probably on Russia. So what incentive is Trump is going to tweet tomorrow on North Korea issue? Thank you. Sure. Uh, first, let me uh, clarify. I certainly didn't mean to suggest that the U.S. should be acting uh, without China as a player. You can't uh, on, on North Korea. Uh, what I was saying was that, and I think the point that Mike shared, is that we have to have unity among the allies uh, first. It's, it's sort of an outside-in strategy, if you will, um, in, in managing the North Korea problem. I do think that you can make the case, uh, with some justification, that um, in recent years, there has been a strong push on Beijing, do more, do more, do more. And there hasn't been perhaps the appropriate recognition of China's own interests uh, on the Korean Peninsula, how they think about uh, the North Korean issue. Um, you can argue certain examples wherein you know, they 
will agree to uh, at the UN to pursue stronger sanctions, and we do that, you know, things like this. And again, you can argue the different sides of the coin, but you know, from Beijing's perspective, you can see how that would be considered sort of a letdown uh, um, for them. So the policy, and this comes to some of the points we've been discussing earlier, requires this immensely fine balance in, in how to manage uh, this process. Um, but I think what we can say is we haven't seen enough activity on, on dealing with this. You know, strategic patience sounds good, but uh, what we've seen is the development of the North Korean problem uh, program to a very dangerous extent. Um, we have to get Beijing more involved in order to uh, be able to arrest that. Mike, do you want to add? Well, just to say, I think the Obama administration has left two um, challenges for its successor on overall U.S.-China relations. Um, one is in the South China Sea, to some extent North Korea, in cyberspace, in steel dumping, in a lot of areas, um, the administration's been prudent but a little too risk-averse. Um, and I, you know, if I were in government, I wouldn't put it this way, but as outside experts, I think a lot of people would say, we need to um, have a little bit more viscosity and tension, inevitably on these issues. As Chris said uh, earlier about core interests, we need to uh, stand up for our allies and our interests. The second challenge, though, is you need that to be in the context of a vision for U.S.-China relations that's positive and constructive. Exactly. And here, the problem, I think, is more uh, in Beijing than Washington. At various points in the Bush administration and early in Obama, uh, we had an interlocutor in Daibingwo. We had someone who had the, the leader's trust in Beijing. Who, and so we could calibrate, put things in context, avoid strategic surprises. Chris has written very precisely on this. The decision-making in Beijing now is so opaque, nobody knows who actually speaks for Xi Jinping, that we don't have the other end of the pipe. And then everything we discussed about the communications on our side compounds it. And so building that kind of dual approach, which is, seems contradictory, but it's not, is imperative. And I don't know. I will, it may happen, but it's, it sounds like the way this transition is going, it may take a bit of time. All right, right here. Uh, Dimitri from the Financial Times. The, there's very little Tell Ajax. Me, I'm sorry, I did. Sorry, Dimitri from the Financial Times. Financial Times. <laughs> um, it's funny, the, the sound in here coming back this way, it's very difficult, uh, but you can hear it, I hope, as it goes out. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, uh, if you look at the cabinet appointees, there's very little Asia experience there. A lot of the Republican Asia experts have signed Never Trump letters. How worried are you that the Asia bench in the administration is going to be very weak and does it matter? And then second of all, on North Korea, Trump during the campaign talked about the possibility of meeting Kim Jong-un. Think outside the box for a second. Is there any argument that he should think about doing that, given that US policy on North Korea has failed for 16 years, at least? You want to go? Oh, God, sure. Chris. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> North Korea is out of my jurisdiction. Uh, on the issue of, of Asia policy, I mean, I think the tricky bit is that you can argue that um, in the first Obama administration, you had a lot of people who were, you know, had Asia experience, were interested. Um, we, I think we saw that reflected in a very, um, in some ways, um, nuanced and skillful um, policy. I think in the second administration, uh, we've seen less of that in that there wasn't sort of a, what I call generally an Asia gorilla or a China gorilla, you know, a cabinet level power ministry person who's sort of managing the relationship. Historically, that model um, has, has worked very well. 
Although we've also seen examples where people who had no previous experience in the area become interested, become smart, you know, on the area, and actually uh, turn out to be very effective. You know, it's it's just like in, in in think tank world or in government. You know, you can be too much of an expert on certain issues, and sometimes it's useful to have a, a just a sort of solid, critical thinking, you know, practical uh, lens looking at the problem. And I think, you know, this is the perhaps the advantage of what we're seeing with this uh, incoming administration is that a lot of these assumptions and thinking about these issues is going to be challenged, and that could be a healthy exercise. So you're right, uh, Dimitri. Chris and I should have been Secretary of State and Defense, <laughs> um, but that's not going to happen. So let let me try to give you the second best. Now I'm obviously joking. You know, in a perfect world, you want at least Deputy Cabinet Secretaries. In the Bush administration, we had Rich Armitage, of course, and Bob Zelik, who instinctively understand this 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 region that most Americans think is the most important region to our future. Heather's right, the most important legacy of post-war foreign policy is what we did in Europe. Now it's, it's the rise of China and the uncertainty in Asia that's going to that's gonna loom ever larger. So in a perfect world, you want someone who will not sort of think that um, outsourcing North Korea policy to China is a good idea, because they'll know what, what happens. Or, or who won't think, gosh, we have an awful lot going on in the world. Let's reach a new model of great power relations with China. So we just sort of work things with China without recognizing that completely devalues all our allies in the region. You want somebody who's not going to sort of fall for superficially attractive ideas. But you don't, as Chris said, you don't have to have uh, a cabinet or deputy secretary uh, level people who do that. You need people with instincts. I would say Mattis, as a commander in CENTCOM, understands how to think about regions holistically. Big check in my box. That's a big box checked. Um, Rex Tillerson, um, you know, ExxonMobil's had a lot of issues with China and the South China Sea and elsewhere. This is not new to him. And foreign policy making in Washington is a meta process. You know, think tanks, Congress, the media, NGOs, foreign governments all play a role in this. The important thing is you have people who instinctively understand, I would say, regional strategy. The system, the international system today, is under duress because we have actors in Russia, Iran, China, and I suppose North Korea who are challenging us regionally, not globally. And so, so the answer is you need grand strategists who know how to think regionally. The role of trade, values, allies, and I think uh, at least in, in, uh, in, in Madison Tillerson you've got that. Um, and then who do they reach out to? How do you plug in? Um, so, you know, Chris and I, you know, we'll, we'll go into the next administration as cabinet secretaries, I think, and, and we'll be okay. <laughs> Let me just uh, broaden that question out. Uh, what about the overall bench strength? So I think one of the challenges that we all had uh, during the presidential campaign, usually we uh, are able to, you know, assess the, the candidates and their foreign policy platforms and we have a sense of who is working on what team. We certainly had that on the uh, Clinton campaign. We did not have that in the Trump team. They're just, they, they were names, and I'll speak only personally myself, they were names and people that I had never heard of, had never had a chance uh, for interaction. Um, I mean, I, I will take, you know, Chris's point about the, the fresh set of eyes. And look, this was an election that rejected <coughs> Washington, and we have to appreciate, and, and look, we have some of that blame assigned on those of us who've been part of this process. 
But what you also don't want to do in getting that fresh set of eyes, that okay, a new thinking on it, you don't want to discount or disregard the 25, 30 plus years of experience that we have all had dealing, bringing relationships with, with European leaders, uh, understanding the history, which is so vital, understanding where it's going. Just like I am sure Mr. Trump would never want me to negotiate a real estate deal in Manhattan because I would have no idea, I hope that he would look at a variety of experts, Democrat, Republican, Independent, it doesn't matter, who has the knowledge, the ideas, who can get it done, who can protect and project US strategic interests. That's what we need. This is a best and brightest moment in my view. We are looking at a series of profound regional uh, challenges that impact US national security enough. Let's get the best and the brightest in there. We have got to figure this out, and the world's not going to wait for us. So I hope that's a, a clarion call on that building that bipartisan expert center. That's an again. excellent point. I think we have time. Did you wish to ask a question here on the front row? Uh, Robbie Harris, a, a former naval person and an interested citizen. Um, in trying to understand how President, uh, will make the, President Trump will make decisions, beyond ego. Uh, some observers have written that his closest advisors subscribe to a foundation of interests rather than values. And so democracy is not valued. Interests are, they argue. And that could explain the bromance uh, with Putin, some say. So I, I just wonder what the, the panel thinks about could could, could his decisions be based on interest as opposed to values? Is that a reasonable, a reasonable way to look at how he would make decisions? Just so, go down the line and we'll sorry. let this be our, our final. Uh, I think it is, it is potentially reasonable to see that uh, that might be how they're, how they're thinking about the issue. I think, for me, this, this looks like so many areas <laughs> um, with uh, this issue. I think you can argue that, you know, perhaps what's been missing, I wouldn't use the term values, I'd just say what might have been missing in the last several years is, is a sort of realpolitik way of thinking about the international uh, system and, and uh, a recognition that not everyone wants to play uh, a role in this sort of globalized hand-in-hand -hand to the future. And you can't just marginalize those people because in many cases they're serious powers in, in the international system. You have to acknowledge uh, that these are you know, in IR theory terms, Hans Morgenthau realists, uh, and that's how, and the world hasn't changed in, in, in that regard. So if we're saying that that sort of a lens could be useful, I think that's right. What I worry about is the risk of overcorrection, you know, doing too much interest-based. We, you know, we're a country that does, uh, is very proud of our values, and it's always been part of our foreign policies. I'm sure Mike's book <laughs> will tell us. Um, and to abandon that would be to abandon who we are, I think, as a country. So my view is if we don't have a values-based approach, we, we can do this for the short term, but we undercut our interests. It's that fundamental. And every time we've strayed from those values, and we have, we understand we are not where we need to be, and we have to take our own course correction, sometimes uh, at great cost. I think so many of us have been trying to understand Mr. Trump and his decision making and we've sort of, everyone's reading the art of the deal and trying to understand the transactional nature of, of how this, but every businessman knows that every partnership is based on trust and credibility 
and consistency. That's the foundation of good business. And so this gets back to the, the trust we have is in our allies and US leadership. Uh, that's, and that's where our values are. So I, you know, I, I hope that we don't get too much experimentation of the interests and the transactional behavior because it's short-sighted. And in the long term, it actually undercuts our own interests at the end of the day. Yeah, the art of the deal and the real estate um, uh, considerable real estate negotiating experience Mr. Trump has are, um, are not going to work uh, ultimately in international affairs. The, 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 the most important line in his book is that, is that you have to be prepared to walk away. And if you walk away from a real estate deal, it gives you more leverage the next time because they're all disassociated. In international affairs, you can't walk away from your alliances. You can't walk away from proliferation. You can't walk away from U.S.-China relations. When you walk away, your leverage in the next deal is considerably undermined, and it starts to cascade. That's why I'm reasonably confident this will, you know, this will start to be obvious. Um, I've, you know, a lot of people in this administration um, uh, look to Ronald Reagan as the touchstone. I'm not sure Mr. Trump does, but a lot of people going in do. And um, Ronald Reagan never separated values and interests. You know, his view, which was right, George Shultz's view, which was right, was that um, we are stronger when there's better governance in the world, when societies are more just. Uh, the person who fought that in Reagan was Al Haig, and he was pushed out for his real politique. And the proof's in the pudding. In Asia, for example, or Europe, um, we have far more democracies today than we did in the 1980s. Our, in the long run, this has been a successful real politics strategy. We've done surveys at CSIS, uh, not since this election, for the election, but overwhelmingly outside of China, Asian societies, Asian leaders want an American role, a leadership role. They, when they ask about values, uh, the values they associate with are good governance, rule of law, democracy, civil society, not the Beijing consensus of authoritarianism. So, uh, I mean, Heather's made a very eloquent point today about how our values are so central to who we are. I think that's right, but it's also central to our success. And, uh, it, and so real politic and uh, values really, our successes have been when we've managed to, as I think Reagan and other leaders did, combine them. Um, and I think a lot of people, I mean, I, I heard that in between the lines in, uh, in, in General Mattis and in Rex Tillerson's testimony. Um, and I think that's a pretty strong continuity of American foreign policy that's disrupted a little bit right now, but I, I don't think our general trajectory on this is going to change for, for too long, in my view. Well, I think on that note, uh, thank you all so much uh, for the, the Arcos Foundation, TCU, and CSIS.